hppodcraft.com has produced this record from actual recordings made at sea. The horrible conclusion which had been gradually obtruding itself upon my confused and reluctant mind was now an awful certainty. I was lost, completely, hopelessly lost in the vast and labyrinthine recesses of the Mammoth Cave. Turn as I might, in no direction could my straining vision seize on any object capable of serving as a guidepost to set me on my outward path. That never more should I behold the blessed light of day or scan the pleasant hills and dales of the beautiful world outside. My reason could no longer entertain the slightest unbelief. Hope had departed. Yet, indoctrinated as I was by a life of philosophical study, I derived no small measure of satisfaction from my unimpassioned demeanor. For although I had frequently read of the wild frenzies into which were thrown the victims of similar situations, I experienced none of these, but stood quiet as soon as I clearly realized the loss of my bearings. That is the first paragraph of a young 14-year-old H.P. Lovecraft story, The Beast in the Cave. You're listening to us talk about it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At HPPodcraft.com, I'm Chris Lackey. And I am Chad Pfeiffer. And we're still together in person. We are. I'm looking right at you right now. I know. It's really intense. It's, it's really intense. Wow. What's, what's happening in that opening paragraph? That opening program is the guy gets lost in a cave. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> See, I summed it up. You did. I can make it much more economical uh, than Lovecraft can. You can. In the last episode, we covered things that he'd written when he was 7, 8, yeah. 12. They were crazy and disordered. And here at 14, we could tell he's definitely developed a style. This is definitely Lovecraft. I mean, it is an immature Lovecraft, but it's yeah. still definitely Lovecraft. He's got that purple prose, which we heard read aloud by our friend Christopher Barnes. Yeah, Kip. Thanks, Kip, for doing that reading. You know, quick aside, I actually met him and we became friends because of Lovecraft. Uh, Heather, my wife, was doing a Second City show out in Alaska, and I went to go visit her. When I was on the flight back from Alaska, there were two portions to the flight. One was from Seattle to... I'm sorry, it was a cruise. So I was in Seattle, went from Seattle to Reno, and on that leg, there was a girl who sat next to me who was reading the Bible the whole time, and uh-huh. she kept looking up and giving me disapproving looks, like, no matter what I did. She seemed like she hated me. <laughs> and... She was in the window and I was in the aisle and I was getting more and more... The more she read the Bible, for whatever reason, that upset me more what and do more. What do you say, girl? How old do you think she was? She was probably like uh, 23. So okay. she's a woman. I'm sorry. No, um, no, no. That's, but she was small in stature, so that's why I think of her that way. Yeah. But anyway, she got to Reno. She gets off the plane and then this dude gets on the plane and he goes, hey, you're in my seat. And I usually sit on the aisle and I was like, no, I just rode the plane all the way in here. I was told jerk about it too. Yeah. I was like, this is my seat. And he showed me his ticket and I was wrong. So the, probably the reason the Bible girl was upset at me. You were sitting was in, I was seat. Sitting in your seat. She didn't want to say anything. I don't know. <laughs> but I moved over and I took all of the anger I had towards her. Plus this, I was like, what, this guy's right all the time. <laughs> One of these people. Fine. And I'm sitting there and his, his wife was with him and sitting across the aisle, which is why he wanted to sit yeah, there. Of but I'm sitting there stewing and then he pulls out this ginormous HP Lovecraft. Oh, like it was anthology. The anthology. It was, it was the Necronomicon, that right. one. It's like the big black book. And starts reading it, and I'm thinking, do I bring it up 
that I do this show or what? Which I, of course I did. Yeah. Long story short, we started talking. He was in the middle of reading the horror at Red Hook. So yeah. I actually sat next to him while he finished that story, which was very funny, you know. And then yeah. we talked about it a bit, got off the plane, he listened to the show, and we've been hanging out ever since. Yeah. We've had pictures of him on our website. He's got a Cthulhu costume. Yeah, he made that himself. Yeah. Last time Chris was in town, he showed up with the really cool Cthulhu yeah. costume. He's got light up eyes. It's, it's yeah. really neat. You can he's see a, it on our He's side. a really fun guy, and he makes some, some good booze. Yes, he makes good booze. That's the one thing I need to, the, the plug I need to get in there. Uh, Kip is part of an organization called LA Ale Works. It's him, him and a partner, and mm-hmm. they brew their own beer. They were originally home brewers, but now they're really plugged into the craft beer scene here in Los Angeles. And they're pretty soon they're going to run a Kickstarter so they can start their own brewery. But the stuff that he makes is outstanding. He makes sake, which is a form of like rice beer, actually, yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, soda as well. And it's really good stuff. So LA Ale Works, we're going to link out to their site so you can find out what's going on with them. And, you know, he has been asking me about making some kind of Lovecraft-themed beer. Yeah. So if anybody's got any ideas for a good title oh, of some yeah. kind... Yeah, but let's put that out to the, yeah. to the listeners, yeah. Please write in on our Facebook page or just contact us directly and let us know what you think would be some good Lovecraftian ale names. And maybe we can get them to make one. Yeah. All right, back to the Beast and the Kid. He's lost, but he's very pleased with himself because he doesn't get too upset. That's what we learned in the opening. Right, he just keeps his, keeps his cool. Shades of the temple there. Right, right, yeah, exactly. In fact, he's so together that he thinks, if I have to die, you know what? This terrible yet majestic cavern is as good a place as I need to do it. <laughs> I can't imagine ever thinking that no, about anything, going, in oh, man, I'm going to die. This is, you know what? This is probably a good way to it's go. It's probably a good place to go right, yeah. by myself in a subterranean lair. Exactly. Which, by the way, he has heard accounts of a colony of consumptives. What does that mean? People with consumption? Ah, okay. Yeah. Who, uh, see, I immediately thought of cannibals. I've been reading too much of this. Like, <laughs> oh, they consume people. That's what consumptives are, right? Uh, who taking their residence in this gigantic grotto. Oh, to find health from the air. I get it. Because uh, right. it's, you know, it's from a pure cave, I guess. Sure. And instead they found death in strange and ghastly form, whatever that means. But when they came through, they saw their cottages and that sort of thing. I guess that was part of the tour. Right. That the people had on. lived there. Now, this is this guy's own fault, right? He was with a group, and there was a tour guide. And he goes, I'm going to go check out some other stuff. <laughs> and, and he, he yeah. left, and he got lost. You know? right. But while he's lost in the cave, he hears something in the darkness with him. He thinks it's an animal, because it sounds like kind of padded foot. Yeah, like a cat or something. Yeah, like exactly. That. And it's not two feet, it's four feet. So he, he's pretty right. sure it's a mountain lion. Yeah, some kind of thing that had gotten maybe trapped down here and had made a living off of whatever squalid cave creatures are down there. Uh, and he's thinking, man, I, I don't really have any way to defend myself. So he gropes around and he, he grabs a couple of rocks. He's got one in each hand. Yeah. And he's just there waiting in the dark because his torch has gone out. And here's that hideous pattering of the paws drawing closer. And there's a little section here that I thought was very Lovecraftian. Most of the time, the tread seemed to be that of a quadruped, walking with a singular lack of unison betwixt hind and forefeet. Yet at brief and infrequent intervals, I fancied that but two feet were engaged in the process of locomotion. I wondered what species of animal was to confront me. It must, I thought, be some unfortunate beast who had paid for its curiosity to investigate one of the entrances of the fearful grotto, with a lifelong confinement in its interminable recesses. It doubtless obtained as food the eyeless fish, bats, and rats of the cave, as well as some of the ordinary fish that are wafted in at every freshet of Green River, which communicates in some occult manner with the waters of the cave. I occupied my terrible vigil with grotesque conjectures of what alterations cave life might have wrought in the physical structure of the beast, remembering the awful appearances ascribed by local tradition to the consumptives who had died after long residence in the cavern. Then I remembered with a start that, even should I succeed in killing my antagonist, I should never behold its form, as my torch had long since been extinct, 
and I was entirely unprovided with matches. The tension on my brain now became frightful. My disordered fancy conjured up hideous and fearsome shapes from the sinister darkness that surrounded me, and that actually seemed to press upon my body. Nearer, nearer, the dreadful footfalls approached. It seemed that I must give vent to a piercing scream, yet had I been sufficiently irresolute to attempt such a thing, my voice could scarce have responded. I was petrified, rooted to the spot. Well, he's not that scared because he flippin' throws one of his rocks at the <laughs> at the thing. He's not sure it's going to work out, but uh, when the thing gets really close, terror-struck as he is, the spell breaks. He's got a rock in each hand. He throws the first one. He mm-hmm. misses it, and then it gets closer, and so he thinks, okay, yeah, I know where it's at. I can hear it, and he throws it a second time, and he flippin' nails it. Yeah, he nails the thing, and then he decides, I'm not going to try and kill this thing. I've got it out, yeah. so I'm just going to get the heck out of here. Right. And he makes a run for it. And uh, he actually finds his guide. The guide spent about four hours looking for him when he noticed that he was gone from the group. Mm -hmm. So when he finds him, he says, look, there's this really weird, crazy animal back there. I think, first of all, he falls to his knees and he hugs the guy's legs. (laughs) He's just so happy. And then he says, can we run back and and check out this monster? They go back. They see the thing laying there. Kind of from behind. From behind, yeah. He doesn't get a good look at its its head or face. But it's not not a four-legged creature. It's a a man-shaped thing. Yeah, it's It's an anthropoid ape of some kind. It's white. It's Mm -hmm. got long, stringy hair and it's white skin. And uh, he rolls it over and takes a look at its face. And it's, it's a deformed human face. Then fear left. And wonder, awe, compassion, and reverence succeeded in its place. For the sounds uttered by the stricken figure that lay stretched out on the limestone had told us the awesome truth. The creature I had killed, the strange beast of the unfathomed cave was, or had at one time been, a man. So, and, and that's the end of the story. That's the end of the story. Feels very Lovecraftian to me. It's got the devolved human beings, mm-hmm. the giant cavern. I mean, it's not particularly scary because, I mean, it's a little intense yeah. when, when the thing's in the dark and running around. That's an intense idea to think about being in the cave with something when you can't see. And I think we've talked about on the show before things that never got to see the daylight, how disgusting they become, you know, pale and albino and nasty. Right. And I think we talked before about when I was cleaning up flood damage in the Mississippi, there were a lot of animals that came up, that got washed up that had been, you know, maybe living in the rocks oh. um, that were albino, like albino cockroach looking things and beetles and things wow. that came shooting out that were just like, oh, my God, animals I couldn't quite identify, you know, sort of. I think they were all rats, you know, but it was just like things move so fast. Oh. It was terrible. I saw some real, real monsters back then but it's a pretty cool creepy story i don't know if it necessarily should should be shunned as a lovecraft story just because he wrote it when he was so young i don't know it's kind of better than some of his stories that he wrote later yeah and i know i was saying that last week but i meant that kind of ironically yeah. i mean here i'm actually serious it's, yeah. it's kind of a good story i thought it was and uh, i mean it's really short and it just kind of creates a bit of a mood and atmosphere and yeah. it's it's a good weird story and quit being so tough on young lovecraft because <laughs> that one's a good one now now to get tough on young lovecraft <laughs> This is something that he wrote a few years later, right? Yeah, The Alchemist. He was, I think, 18 when he wrote this story. And it shares some things with The Outsider and, and definitely shares some things with Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Poe. Because it's this fella that's in, it's, it's in France and he's in one of these fortresses that's been around forever. Barons, counts, and kings have been defied from this place. Mm. Nobody's ever gotten through the gates. Uh, all invaders have been repelled. But things have changed over the years. The people that live there obviously have the title, but they didn't have the money to back it up. Mm-hmm. This is, We know that that's a little love 
Lovecraft biography seeping right. in there, right? Yep. But also something that happens to a lot of nobility that over the years they don't have sure. the incomes, but because they have titles, they can't go to work right. or do any merchant class Well, stuff. like Lady Arabella. Like Lady Arabella. <laughs> so uh, they get up in crazy real estate deals with people and that sort of thing. <laughs> this guy, Antoine, yes. is the last of the unhappy and accursed Comte de... C. C. Don't say the name. But when I read that real quick, I was like, Comte de Chagny popped into my head, and I couldn't remember where that was from. What is that from? It's from Phantom of the Opera. Raoul, the uh, hero. Oh, okay, yeah. the Comte de Chagny, I think. So is this supposed to be somehow connected to him, do you think? Well, I don't think it's supposed to be connected, but he might have just sort of yanked it out of there. Hmm. But, I mean, it's a common title, so who knows? Sure. But, but anyway, Antoine goes on a little bit about what his childhood was like. Within these walls, and amongst the dark and shadowy forests, the wild ravines and grottoes of the hillside below, were spent the first years of my troubled life. My parents I never knew. My father had been killed at the age of 32, a month before I was born by the fall of a stone somehow dislodged from one of the deserted parapets of the castle. And my mother having died at my birth, my care and education devolved solely upon one remaining servitor, an old and trusted man of considerable intelligence, whose name I remember as Pierre. And that's what really struck me as it being like the outsider. Yeah. Stuck in this ancient castle, you know, reading old books. Got right. one old person to take care of him. And Pierre won't let him associate with other kids, he says, because of his noble birth. We oui. Now, uh, on his 21st <laughs> birthday, uh, Pierre tells him some stuff about his family, kind of lets, lets some light in on what, what the heck's going on. And he finds out that his family has been suffering f- for many generations from a curse. And it's been handed down from father to son for, for years and years. Since uh, the 13th century. Exactly. In the 13th century, the castle that he lived in was that impregnable fortress that I was talking about earlier. Yes. Mm-hmm. And on the estates surrounding the fortress, there was a guy named Michel who had the surname Mauvais, the evil. Great name. Michel Mauvais. He had a sinister reputation. He was looking for the Philosopher's Stone or the Elixir of Eternal Life. And he, he had all kinds of secrets of black magic and alchemy. And yeah. he had a son named Charles who was really into it as well. Yeah. They were wizards. They were wizards. So this, when I read that, that made me think of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Absolutely. Old Michel was said to have burnt his wife alive as a sacrifice to the devil. <laughs> and there are a bunch of peasant children who keep uh, missing from yes. the village. But, you know, I will say this. Old Michel is kind of a bad guy for stealing children and everything. But at least he loves his son. And he's, you know, getting him involved in what he's involved yeah, in. Yeah, he's a good father. Things together, so. yeah. But what happens is one night, uh, everybody freaks out in the castle because Godfrey, who was the son to uh, Henri, who's the current comrade, right. mm-hmm. goes missing. Yeah. Well, they just assume that the necromancers did it. Right. <laughs> right. Well, they, they or hunt, the wizards or whatever. The wizards, yeah. Yeah, they assume the wizards had something to do with it, and so Henri, with a search party, runs down. They bust in on Michel. He's busy over a big cauldron, Macbeth-style, yeah. mixing up I have Newt and all that kind of stuff. Henri runs in there, he grabs him, and he kills him. That's it. But, unfortunately, some servants find Godfrey. He wasn't dead. Pretty much simultaneously to this event yeah. happening. Yeah, yeah. So, little uh, Chuck... He he flips out and he gives a full-on curse. Yeah, he jumps out of the trees and uh, he lays this curse on him. May ne'er a noble of thy murderous line survive to reach a greater age than thine. Which is 39 years old? 32 years 32 old. 32 years old, that's right. He, and he pulls out of his tunic some kind of vial of something which he throws into the face of Henri. Mm-hmm. And then he disappears behind the inky curtain of the night. and All Batman style? Yeah, all Batman style. And then Henri dies at the age of 32. Now... 
Nobody finds Charles. As far as they know, they're never going to have to deal with these people again. But he now you obviously know what's going to happen. He has a son who dies at the age of 32. He has a son who dies at the age of 32. This keeps happening. And it's always accidental death of some kind. You know, a stone falling or an arrow hits a guy while he's hunting. And at first, nobody really thinks through that it's going to be this curse. But obviously. And so once he finds out about this at the age of 21, obviously his life is pretty dear to him because he's only a little over 10 years away. Yeah, from yeah. And and he's alone. I mean, he doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have children. He doesn't have a family. But he also, because he had such a backward experience because of that, that he only read these medieval metaphysics texts. Yeah. He doesn't know about modern science or anything like that. He decides, well, I'll just rely on these texts again. And he goes in and he reads up on demonology, alchemy. You know, he's doing everything he can to try and figure out how to stop this curse magically. Right. As he gets close to 30, unfortunately, old Pierre passes away. Right. He buries him and now he's completely alone. And so he decides to start exploring the rest of the castle because uh, he's living pretty much in this one tower because that's the only part of it that's really intact and livable. And when he was a kid, he was just scared of the rest of it, basically. But now that he's a grown man, he thinks, okay, well, uh, maybe I'm going to see what else is in here. What else am I going to (laughs) do? I got a lot of free time on my hands. (laughs) Exactly. He starts exploring this place and he finds a, a trap door. Yeah, it's, he calls it the culminating event of his whole life. He, he goes down an old staircase, mm-hmm. and in the lower levels, he finds some kind of... Um, it's either a storehouse for gunpowder or a medieval place of confinement. Oh, wait, that reminds me of Osher as well. Yeah. You really love that story. <laughs> so as he's looking around the passageway, that's where he finds the trapdoor in that room. Mm -hmm. And he opens it up and reveals this aperture. Noxious fumes come out, which cause the torch to sputter. This is all great Lovecraft stuff. He lowers his torch to the depths, and he sees, okay, there's some stairs. He goes down. It's a long passage. Mm -hmm. And at the end, there's this massive oak door. Everything's really moist and damp down here. And the door opens up without warning. Well, but he tries to open it. He can't get it open. When he turns to leave... Oh, right. Then the door opens up. Yeah, which is... I thought that was actually kind of creepy when I was... Yeah, that's pretty good. It's almost like he stirred something in there. And... It gets, this is where things kind of go a little downhill for me on this in this particular story. Uh, I actually, this is where it gets really good for me. <laughs> There's a dude standing there in a medieval tunic and a little skull cap, and yeah. he's got long flowing hair and a beard. He basically looks like the guy from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah, that's what I thought of when yeah. I read it, too. You know, uh, the, uh, you have chosen wisely. That yeah, guy, yeah. Uh, and uh, now, luckily, our character, having only been educated on medieval texts, mm-hmm. knows how to speak that bastardized, debased Latin that was flying around between the educated people in the Middle Ages. So right. he can actually communicate with this guy. Mm-hmm. I, I really wish I could see how the conversation started. I mean, you know, how did they get into this? Because all it says is the immediately this bearded guy just starts telling him these stories and boasting over how Charles Mave had escaped into the night after yeah. placing this curse. How did the conversation start? Uh, who are you? And he said, hey, I'm I'm a guy that <laughs> hides in a room. And but first, let me tell you a story. Let me tell go. you a story. <laughs> and then there's uh, lots of, you know, that kid escaped, and then there was lots of deaths, and... Uh, and, and well, I don't know. I had the, something to do with it. I don't know. He talks it. about the curse. Yes. And then he says, you're going to die soon. Right. Now, I assume th- that it's because he's the last of his house that he's getting this information. But the guy comes out and says, there's a curse on your house. You're going to die soon. And the reason is because of the wrong perpetrated on by your ancestor against old Michel Mave. Mm-hmm. And it's Charles Lassocier, uh who's who's getting the revenge and then he tells of how young Charles had escaped into the night and mm-hmm. returned and 30 years later to kill 
Godfrey with an arrow. Right. So suddenly this curse starts. It's not as cursy as it is. Yeah, it starts falling apart. And then, then he tells how he had seized Robert, son of Godfrey, in a field forced poison down his throat and left him to die at the age of 32. Robert was the the grandson of the original offender. And then the narrator's a little puzzled. How did the curse get fulfilled by Charles? Because he would have died. Yeah, he would have been way too old. Well, anyway, he attacks him. (laughs) <laughs> I'm just yeah. let's cut to the chase. Let's here. cut to the chase here. Yeah, yeah that, that's right. The guy, the, the uh, this old the stranger, uh, the stranger guy attacks attacks him. He's and, got a glass uh, vial, right? And our guy just kicks his ass, basically. Yeah, he throws his torch at him. Yep, and it sets him on fire. Yeah. <laughs> so the guy's plan to reveal himself on the last uh, person is probably a bad plan because he's so old and frail. His clothes have got to be so flammable if they're still from the Middle Ages. Wow, yeah. Yeah, so he throws the torch at him and he just bursts into flame and burns down. And there's a lot of florid Lovecraft stuff here, but basically the guy burns to a crisp. However, suddenly the wretch, animated with his last burst of strength, raised his hideous head from the damp and sunken pavement. Then, as I remained, paralyzed with fear, he found his voice, and in his dying breath screamed forth those words which have ever afterward haunted my days and my nights. Fool! he shrieked. Can you not guess my secret? Have you no brain whereby you may recognize the will which has through six long centuries fulfilled the dreadful curse upon your house? Have I not told you of the great elixir of eternal life? Know you not how the secret of alchemy was solved? I tell you, it is I, I, I that have lived for six hundred years to maintain my revenge. For I am Charles, le sorcier. What? It's a horrifying revelation. (laughs) It's the guy that I kind of thought it was immediately. (laughs) (laughs) That's the revelation. Oh no! That's the revelation, and that's the end of the story. That's the end of the story. Oh. Yeah, this it's this is just a crazy story. And what a, oh. do you think? Because he was saying all that stuff at the end after he'd been burned. Wow! Yeah, his charred and shriveled figure. Yeah. So then he has lips. Yeah. No, his lips must have been burnt off. Can you not guess my secret? <laughs> have you no very you may recognize the will which has had six long centuries. Actually, he does have lips. The cracked lips tried to frame words, which I could well not understand. I, I kind of liked that Skeletor-type voice you're doing there. Have I not told you of the great elixir of eternal life? <laughs> That's good. That's good stuff. Uh, so, interesting way f- to use a curse. If the guy had enough magic mojo to live for 600 years, you would think that he would have enough magic mojo to keep a simple curse like well, this Well, it's not going. a curse. When Here's he, the, the funny yeah, thing. It's not it's, a curse. Why would, I mean, it, it, sure it's a curse. But he said he, something was going to happen and then it happened. Yeah, but a curse needs to be... Like, if I told you... Yeah. I'm like, I'm cursing you. Every night at 10 o'clock when you lay in bed, you're going to get a headache. Uh-huh. And then every night at 10 o'clock, I snuck in the window and I punched you in the head. <laughs> Is that a curse? Well, yeah. I think it's a curse. Maybe <laughs> it's the the method of delivery that you're you're talking Wait, about here. You're gonna look up curse. Okay, look it up. I, I mean, because then when have you ever read a story about a curse where you're like, we stopped the curse by finding a guy and kicking his ass? <laughs> I haven't. I haven't read a. Does it have to be supernatural? Is that the thing with the curse? A curse is any expressed wish that some form of adversity or misfortune will befall or attach to some other entity. Okay. In particular, 
Curse may refer to a wish that harm or hurt will be inflicted by any supernatural powers, such as a spell, a prayer. All right, well, something supernatural is going on here. Well, he's old. Yeah, he's living supernaturally long. Right, but... But I know what you mean. It's not a curse. <laughs> it's, te- it's not it, technically a curse. It, well, no, I think technically it is a curse, but I think, you know, Wait, by the I'm letter of the, the law, it's a, it's a curse, but it's not actually a curse in the spirit. Like, as in it should be this sort of mystical energy force or incredibly bad luck that should befall mm, the person right. and not not actually a malevolent dude. Yeah. That's just causing him. But, uh, but the curse really is just praying or appealing for evil and misfortune to befall someone or something, so... I just so you know. If, well, he, he he did, and then he made sure it happened by actually doing stuff. <laughs> Curse you! I'm just you know, but but still, yeah, it's kind of a letdown of a story because well, it's it's pretty cool, and then the ending is just kind of like. But I laughed out loud when I realized that was going on. When he's like, "Ha Look how it all worked out! I hid in the bushes and shot an arrow at him." <laughs> My curse was genius. What a horrible way to live 600 years and spend all your time just lurking around waiting for guys. 30 years. You waited 32 years at a time. <laughs> well, not necessarily because if a guy is has a kid, you know, he probably has a kid when he's maybe 20 or something like that. So then it would be. Oh, you're right. Sure. You have to wait a while longer. It wouldn't be every 32 years. Yeah, you're it right. would be, you know, so if yeah. he's 20, then. <laughs> but. But still. But yeah. you know what would be funny is if in those, while the time passed, he didn't stay in the, you know, he didn't stay at the, uh, he didn't stay with the family in that secret room that we found him in. He went out and he lived his own life, you know? And then every 30, every time you go, oh man, that kid's turning, turning, I got to go back there, put my medieval gear on. <laughs> I got to shove some poison down somebody's throat. That would make a really good movie, actually. That, yeah. There's like, a, why are you always disappearing every 32 well, years? Well, I got a curse that I got to fulfill. <laughs> It's either me or the curse. I love you. (laughs) (laughs) I have to go. It's a romantic drama. That's not how I was. You don't understand. Yes, I'm immortal, but I have to go. Yeah, that would. I would have been a better story if we got to see Charles decide. Check that story could still be written. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, these are good though. These are pretty good. I I think I liked the the really juvenile stuff a little better than these. But, it's um, a, l- a lot more fun and more uh, unpredictable. But, yeah. <laughs> but I did. I, I actually enjoyed the. Uh, I like the beast in the cave. The beast in the cave. I thought that was that was a good Lovecraft story. That was a good a good good Lovecraft story. Yeah. And the second one was a good bad Lovecraft story. Yeah. You know, it had like the really silly thing at the end that doesn't quite. Make I'm glad sense we covered. Think it through. I'm glad we covered these as um, kind of being completist now because now we actually have hit all of his pros well we didn't cover that Ciametti stuff with pe- which people still oh right we didn't do that about. well we covered we, it they told us we couldn't right <laughs> right well no they didn't they didn't tell us we couldn't somebody was posting on our forums uh, excerpts yeah. from the story and then they gave us a you better take that down or we're going to sue you yeah, yeah yeah and I've heard they're very litigious the, right. the people that have it but actually from a legal standpoint we are allowed to even read excerpts on our show and yeah. do it but the, the stories aren't available to everybody out right. there, and that's why we didn't do it. I bought the, a book that has mm-hmm. them in there, and I've read, we've read and them. And we did talk about them on And we did episodes. talk about them. We yeah, we covered cover them. The we just story. didn't do any excerpts from them. Yeah, yeah. So now we've officially covered all of Lovecraft's prose. Yes, we've nailed it. That's it. We're done. And so, yeah, I'm going to just uh, quit the podcast. So see you later. No, no, we have more to do. Like what? Well, I'll tell you. We have on the schedule a story by a Mr. Rudyard Kipling. Never heard of him. Well, he's a very famous British author, Chris. So. What's he written? Uh, he wrote The Jungle, 
which is a very popular a book about no. the Industrial Revolution. No, that's Upton Sinclair. Oh, you do seem to know a little bit about this. <laughs> I just know who wrote that. I don't know who this Kipling fellow is. You know, Kipling will be an interesting thing to tackle because there's a lot of backlash against him as well. You know, he's a, Why? Well, because he was a British colonialist and a lot of in his stories India. are set in India yeah. and, and, and that sort of thing. And there's a lot of... Similar to Lovecraft, uh, he's, he's probably one of the best storytellers in fiction, but there's a lot of folks who are like, ah, screw that guy because of what his attitudes were. So it's always, it's that, you know, do we judge somebody by history kind of thing. That right, right. But Mark of the Beast is the name of that. I'm excited about it because I have heard, I haven't read a lot of Kipling, that he's very good at writing uh, these scary okay. horror stories. And then, similar to how we thought we were going to do Lair of the White Worm, we're going to cover something longer mm-hmm. for the next, That that's our our free show, right? Yep, that's the free one. The Mark of the Beast is Mark of the free Beast show. is a free show. It'll be open to everybody, anybody that wants to hear it. There you go. And then we're going to cover... For our subscribers, we're going to cover The Werewolf. The Werewolf by yeah. Clemens Hausman. Which I hear is a very good story. Yeah, and it's also about a werewolf. It's about a werewolf. Which we've never really... You know, there's been loose talk about the ghost of a werewolf, that yeah. kind of thing on the show. <laughs> I was going to say, wait, we did talk about a ghost <laughs> ghost werewolf. But I'm really excited about this because I love werewolves so much. And this is a story from 1896, so I'm sure it's going to be a, you oh, know, yeah. some OG stuff. So I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a good time. I'm looking forward to, to yeah. that and to uh, the Mark of the Beast. Listen closely. Well, it's been good to actually be sitting in a room with you to do this. Yeah, dude, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to go back to England while I'm not. Sorry, sorry, but yeah. I'm sorry to... We'll be back to the Skype. Yeah. The Skype relationship. Uh, there, there is a talk that we might be doing a, a, a live show uh, this summer, but uh, we're still trying to work that out and see if we can make that happen. Yeah, but there's going to be a convention in Providence. When we know more, we'll say more, but our Absolutely. plan is to perhaps do an American live show. An American live show. In Lovecraft's hometown. So hopefully that'll happen. We'll tell you more about it next time. Uh, with that, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. Fool! He shrieked. Can you not guess my secret? Sorry. Sorry. Sorry.